For many of you, this is a special day, Valentine's Day, a day when love is in the air. <laughs> but the question is, is that biblical love? Oftentimes, it's not. It's more of a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately type of love. And many people don't know the difference. So I'm going to use this opportunity and this day to preach on biblical love because, unfortunately, many Christians, Christians have adopted the culture's definition of love. So when they run into trouble and when it's time to display Christ-like love in all of their relationships, they fail. They fail. And so I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. We're going to delve into what the Word of God has to say on this subject. Now, normally when I engage in uh, biblical premarital counseling, I'll ask the soon-to-be bride and the soon-to-be groom, um, why do you want to marry him, and why do you want to marry her? And in Christian premarital counseling, the answer almost always sounds something like, I love the way they worship God. <laughs> or, they truly have a servant's heart, and that is so attractive to me. Now, on the surface, those seem like great answers. But just below the surface, there are serious problems with those answers. For instance, what happens if they begin to go through a, a season when they just don't feel like reading the Bible right now? And they just don't feel like praying today or tomorrow? Or even when they don't feel like attending church anymore? Now, you no longer have someone who loves to worship, at least not God anyway. So what do you do? And what happens if they are no longer showing that same servant's type heart that attracted, to you, attracted you to them in the first place? Will you now stop showing them love and affection because you're no longer attracted to them? I tell them that I believe a better answer to the question, why do you want to marry him or why do you want to marry her, is I want to marry them because I love them and want to commit my life to serving them through the highs and the lows for as long as we both shall live. Again, I want to marry them, not an idea of marriage, because I love them and want to commit my life to serving them through the highs and the lows for as long as we both shall live. So what's the difference? The difference is if your spouse should reach a point in life in which they no longer feel like serving God or serving people, the fact that you love them and have committed your life to serving them through the highs and the lows, now is your chance to lay down your life for them. Since God has providentially placed you in their life at this time to help them get back to him through prayer, through the word, through kindness, 
through compassion and through humility. That's how Christ loves us, his bride. I remember years ago being in church. This is going back about 20 years, right? I was mad at my wife, Sharon. Please don't judge me. I was, I was mad. I wasn't upset. I was mad, right? In church, still greeting people, good morning. Still singing hymns, like everything was okay, but I was mad. And after we sat down and the preacher is about to preach, through the corner of my eye, I see Sharon opening the Bible, and I'm just mad. Don't even matter what she's doing. But she gets to a place and she puts her finger on a certain passage and she places it in my lap. <laughs> And it's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, and most of us know what that says. Be angry and do not sin. Neither let the sun go down on your anger, wrath, old King James. Now, it takes roughly 2.9 seconds for the average person to read this verse. But it took me about 60 seconds because I'm just looking at the verse and I'm reading it over and over. And I am trying to make it fit with how I'm feeling. I'm trying to reconcile this verse with my anger and I can't. And so what I have to do is I have to, I have to cast off this anger. I had no biblical grounds to remain angry. Holding one another accountable through prayer, through the word, through kindness, through compassion, patience, and humility is the task that God has assigned every believer, but especially within the marriage union. And although most couples will say the words, for better or worse, in some form or fashion within their wedding vows, many really think deeply about it when it comes to getting married. So when worse comes, most are not prepared. So in our main text today, husbands and wives are instructed as to how they should dwell with one another in holy matrimony, and Christ himself is the example that we are given. If you're single, please don't check out. I believe our text today will give you a greater appreciation for the incredible sacrifice Christ made upon the cross for his bride, us, the church. The three points for our sermon today are point number one, glorifying God as a servant savior. And point number two, glorifying God as a servant wife. And point number three, glorifying God as a servant husband. Please follow along as I read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18, straight through chapter 3 and 7. This is the holy word of God. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? 
But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Please pray with me. Father, as we cover this precious subject, this topic, Lord, please help. Please help me, Lord, to uh, speak clearly, accurately, uh, with no bias towards anything, Lord God, but objective truth, which comes from your word. And I pray that your spirit would fill me and guide me, Lord. And I pray your spirit would fill this place in the hearts and minds of the, the, the men, women, uh, and children, Lord God, to help us to understand the relationship of Christ and the church, husband and wife, covered by the Holy Spirit. Please help me in all of this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Point number one, glorifying God as a servant savior. Jesus Christ, as we know, is the servant savior. In the preceding verses to our text, the apostle Peter begins teaching on the subject of submission, godly submission. In verses 13 to 20, he addresses the need to submit to the government by saying, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. But he doesn't leave it there. He gives us the reason why we are to do this in verses 15 and 16, saying, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, and we are to live as people who are free, not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but we are to live as servants of God. That's a major theme in Peter's first letter. That's the underlying attitude that we as believers are to have in whatever situation we find ourselves in, to live as servants of God first. 
That has to be the mindset wherever you are, whoever you're with. I am a servant of God. I am not going to respond to the way they're acting. I'm not going to allow them to pull me out of where God has me and what God has called me to. And as Christians, we should enjoy our freedom in Christ, but our freedom is never to be an excuse for self-indulgence or license to sin. Peter then takes the low, lowest and most humiliating position of slavery in verses 18 to 20 and teaches believers who were going through it at that time how to honor, trust, and live as servants of God by giving them the supreme example of Jesus submitting to God by going to the cross and giving his life for others. If when we got married, our thought was, I'm going to commit my life to serving this person through the highs and the lows, it would help us greatly. When the disappointments come, Lord God, I believe in your providence. You have brought me here for a purpose. And we come together in holy matrimony to lift one another up. When this one is weak, I'm here for you. And when I'm weak, I know you, you're going to carry me. That's what it's about when you stand before the preacher or wherever you stand before, whoever you stand before. I am here for that instead of they're here for me, to make me happy, to push all my buttons, to lift me up when I'm weak. You will be disappointed very quickly. In, in, in verses 21 through 23, Peter says, for to this you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. To revile is to pile up abusive and vicious, vile language against someone. Though verbally abused, Christ never retaliated with vicious words. They called him, though, a Samaritan, a glutton, a drunkard or wine-bibber, a blasphemer, a demoniac, one who works by the power of Beelzebul, a perverter of the nation, and a deceiver of the people. But he did not return fire with fire, as we would say, even though he had done nothing wrong. We, on the other hand, are sinners. When we suffer wrong, we can't say we are innocent. We may not have sinned at that moment to, to receive the corresponding wrong that is being done, done against us, but at some point in time, we sinned and we sinned grossly and did not receive the justice that was due for our sin at that time. So any wrong that comes back to us at a later date must cause us to realize we can never say we are innocent. We are not innocent. Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, by the way, where in context, you have Christians taking other Christians to court. He says, why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? You yourselves wrong your brothers. You yourselves defraud even your own brothers. 
Once again, Jesus never wronged or defrauded anyone. Yet at the most painstaking point in his existence, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to God the Father. To entrust is to be handed over to someone to keep. Christ was handed over to Pilate. Pilate handed him over to the Jews. Christ himself handed himself over to God. He did it. Suffering in silence because of his perfect confidence, his perfect confidence and righteousness in the Father who would judge him correctly. Do you have that same confidence? That no matter what anybody says about you, you know that God will judge you justly, correctly. In the end, that's all that matters. In the end, we have one judge. And if you know that you are walking according to scripture, looking to please God, would that person say, it, it may sting a little, but it should not cause you to hang your head and spiral into some type of quote-unquote depression that you can't get out of because of this person. What God says, the one that we are called to hand ourselves over to, to entrust his thoughts about us is what's most important. That's what matters. And the only way we can have that confidence is by entrusting our all our future, our present, knowing that he has been faithful with our past, knowing that if we take time, if we took time, we cut everything off and we sat, we sat and we thought about it, how did I get from point A to point B? How did I get to where I am today? And just think about it. Think about the people God brought into your life, whether for a long time or for a short time. Stop and think about it and give God all the glory. It should cause you to get down to, on your knees and say, thank you, Lord. I forgot about that person. I forgot about how low that I was at that time in my life. I forgot uh, uh, when it seemed as if everyone was against me, but yet you opened up a door this way. Praise your holy name. Peter tells us about Jesus' love for us also. Not just God the Father, but he moves. He moves to give us this example of, of, of Christ's love. So great for us in verse 24, when he says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? Why would he do that? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus laid aside his glory and vacated his seat in heaven next to the Father, though he never stopped being God. He went to a bloody cross and laid down his life for our sake. Those who believe, those who have been born again, those who trust in him. Because according to verse 25, we were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Jesus is the shepherd of Psalm chapter 23, who restores my soul and leads me down paths of righteousness for his sake, his name's sake. He came and brought us into the fold of his flock. And then in John chapter 10, Jesus says, the sheep hear his voice. 
And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. If you belong to Jesus, you are of his flock. He is the overseer of your soul and the price for your soul was not cheap. As 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 19 says, you were bought with the precious blood of Christ. And because we belong to him, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 tells us we are not our own. And we are to glorify God in our body. Which brings us to point number two. Glorifying God as a servant wife. Peter uses the sacrificial act of Christ laying down his life on the cross to springboard into the institution of marriage. Unfortunately, in our day, we have a chapter break. And that, distur that disturbs the flow for many. So when chapter three begins with the words, likewise, many start off the chapter here and don't bother to find out like what? But by going back five verses into the previous chapter, you get the answer like Christ. Chapter three, verses one and two says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct in our postmodern, highly educated society, these words are highly offensive and archaic. It's one thing for these words to be highly, off highly offensive and archaic to the unbeliever, but they are highly offensive and archaic to many Christians. The blessing that God gives to marriage is the blessing of an order system, not a value system. Hear me clearly. It's not about who's worth more, but it's about Christ-like submission in the home. We can see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. There it says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a woman is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Just as there is authority, submission to authority, and order in the Trinity, there is to be authority, submission to authority, and order in the home. And just as Christ is not less in substance, wisdom, love, mercy, holiness, knowledge, so forth and so on than the father, neither is the wife less in any way, shape, or form than her husband. Nevertheless, God called for the wife to be subject to her husband. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we see one of the purposes for it. The scenario here is speaking of an incredibly difficult situation that many wives find themselves in, in today, where the wife is saved, but the husband is not. How can she represent Christ best in her home? By having a peaceful and loving spirit. She is to be subject to him, except where it is against Christ. 
We learned that from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. There it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And we see the qualifier there. The submission has to be as to the Lord, which means it won't include doing anything that is against the will of God, but only holy and God-glorifying actions tied to the submission. But even that can be difficult when dealing with an unbelieving husband. But once again, what is the purpose? What is God's plan in all of this? That the unbelieving husband may be saved. Listen again to 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, 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 verse 1. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. God is always concerned with his kingdom first and foremost. He proved this by sending his only son to the cross, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The thought that their unsaved husband may one day repent of his sins and pursue Christ with a passion has helped many women to overcome the suffering that they are receiving, the trials that's coming to them on a regular basis from their unsaved husbands. And Peter is saying that the quiet, but powerful persuasion of Christ-like behavior would be more effectual in winning the souls of their unbelieving husbands rather than the wife having uh, an argumentative disposition and a sharp tongue that's prepared for battle. Oh, I'm going to get him. Oh, I'm going to turn him around for Jesus. Not that way. Not that way. The hope from scripture is that when, 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 when that husband finds out what a godly influence the gospel has had in making his wife a beautiful, lovely, patient person, despite his own harshness and wickedness, that he may conclude that it was her relationship with this Jesus that she's always talking about that produced such an excellent transformation in his wife. That's the point. Through evangelism training this morning, it's not just telling people about Christ, but are you living it? Have you pulled the beam out of your eyes before you're about to tell this person who sees you on a regular basis, especially that Christ is able to change hearts and change minds, change dispositions. Are they seeing Christ in you? If not, you're just spitting words at them and they're looking at you and say, I don't want no part of that. They're worse than me. Or at least I know how to push their buttons. I know how to get right through all of that holy stuff. The Apostle Paul essentially says the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 2, verses 24 to 26. Right. Let's turn there for a minute. Let's, let's, let's go there for a minute. I, I, I want you guys to remember this place. I want you to mark it in your Bibles. I, I, I want you to think about it and, 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 and change your disposition if you see yourself in here. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. I'm going to read a part of 25 and then we'll continue. There it says... <clears throat> And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, 
but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. By the way, all of these things are hard to do. I'm not going to act like they're easy. All of them are hard to do. But especially within a marriage where you have two people who forgot pride is not to be found within them, especially in the home. Pride should be absent. But when pride is prevalent and you have two people who act like they're in a competition to see who's more righteous, you're going to fight all the time. What this scripture is saying, it should be two people who are called to encourage, build up one another, and serve each other. That's marriage. That's biblical, biblical marriage. Building up, serving, and loving one another as Christ has showed you. Encouraging each other. But there's a reason that we should not be quarrelsome but kind to one another, patiently enduring evil and correcting our opposition with kindness is that God may perhaps grant them repentance. God may do the work in them. God may grant them uh, repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. All of your anger, all of your yelling cannot change the heart. You might get them to modify their behavior for a little while, but because their heart remains unchanged, they have the same fleshly, even unregenerate heart, and they're repeating the same thing. It'll come back, it'll show, it'll rear its ugly head again, and you don't know what to do, but God says here, do it my way. Do it my way. And perhaps I'll show you that I am God, not you. What are we doing when, we, when, when we're raising our voice at, at people and yelling? What are we doing? We're pretending we are the Almighty. We will never say that. But we're taking this position of authority. You never listen. And we get into these arguments over and over. When the scripture, I'm not making it up, it's been here for 2,000 years. And it's saying, you're a servant of the Lord, you must not be quarrelsome. It's been there. You must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, right? Able to teach. What? Teach what? Everybody's not called to be a pastor or a teacher. No. Everybody can teach someone about Christ. Able to teach. Who is the Lord? He is King of kings, Lord of lords. He changes hearts. He says, I must go away. If I don't go away, I cannot send you. I won't be able to send you the comforter. But I'm going to send you someone who's going to be with you and in you. And I'm going to write my laws on your heart. And it's going to produce change. And here God says, I may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Right? Perhaps they're captured by that. You can do nothing about that, but God can to trust him. How do you know you trust him? You stop yelling so much. And that person will look at you and say, there's a change here. Wait a minute. When I did that before, she would be on me, but oh, 
wait a minute, something's different here. You're believing the word. You're believing what God says. He brings everlasting change, step by step, from glory to glory, measurement by measurement, so that if you stop trying to replace God, sat back and watched, I said, wait, wait, they are, they are getting better. I've been so uh, impatient that I want to change overnight, but I notice that they are getting better. They are looking like Christ. Even if they're unregenerate, I notice that they're asking more questions about church or the Bible. Or that they're even more tolerant as I'm sharing scripture now, before they would leave the room. But perhaps God is doing something. If we would just stop rushing God, if we would just stop playing God. Think back to when we were unsaved. Back to our text in 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter is basically saying the same thing. Wives, do it God's way. Do it God's way. In verse 3 of 1 Peter 3, he says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter's point is not that women shouldn't wear braids or put on jewelry or nice clothing. He's saying your external beauty should not be your primary focus when trying to be beautiful. Your primary focus should be adorning a beautiful Christ-like servant's heart. That's what is attractive to God. He says, a gentle and quiet spirit is very precious to God. Remember Christ? When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He is the example. He lived to please God. What is better than pleasing God? Nothing. As a matter of fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9 tells us we are to make it our aim to please God. He says, Peter says, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Peter named Sarah, but there's also Hannah. Right? Wife of Elkanah, mother of Samuel, who, by the way, prays one of the most beautiful and doctrinally sound prayers in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Go read it today. It's, it, is, it is so good and solid. Then there's Ruth, wife of Boaz, great-grandmother of King David, who left her home and her nation to follow the God of Israel, as Peter brought out this morning. Then there's Rahab, the ex-harlot, wife of Salmon, Mother of Boaz, and we know Boaz played the role of the redeemer, uh, of the kinsman redeemer, which points to Christ, which was pointing to Christ. Then there's Elizabeth, wife of Zechariah, mother of John the Baptist. And then there's Mary, wife of Joseph, mother of Jesus. The list of godly 
women, godly wives who submitted to their husbands and watched their households flourish goes on and on. Peter says these women who hoped in God lived in such a way that their manner of life was very precious to God. His instructions to wives are to go and do likewise as you seek to follow Christ. That is the goal. That is the goal, to follow Christ, right? The goal isn't Mary. The goal isn't none of the women I named. The goal is to follow Christ. Remember the theme of 1 Peter. No matter what you're going to, to live as a servant of God. That's the goal. Point number three, glorifying God as a servant husband. This is what the wives were waiting for. One verse, but a major verse. It carries huge responsibility. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The likewise here isn't reflective of the wife, but is jumping all the way back to the Example of Christ. By the authority of the Holy Spirit, Peter commands all husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. In other words, husbands, know your wives. Pastor Max touched on this uh, last Sunday. Uh, I'm going to go a little further with the text. A husband should know his wife's fears, her desires, her likes, or things that bring her joy, her dislikes, or things that cause her sorrow. Why? So he may be able to lift her up when the pressures of life are wearing her down. He is to be her example of Christ on earth. Husbands must pay attention and even ask questions in order to know his wife for the supreme purpose of helping her to honor Christ and serve him with joy. He is not to be the stumbling block that makes it hard for her to follow, love, and enjoy Christ. We have the picture of the, of the, of the, of the place of refuge, the city of refuge in the Old Testament, when somebody would accidentally kill uh, 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 somebody's family member. If he could make it to this city, before the avenger of blood catches him, a brother or a father or anybody, a friend of that person you killed, if he can get across those lines within that city, he was safe. He was safe. That's what the, 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 the Christian home should be. When, 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 when the wife, we'll take the wife, because that's what we're talking about, gets home, the trouble should not be in the home. That should be the place when, when, when she is dealt with wicked bosses and wicked uh, uh, co-riders on public transportation or wicked family member, members who are bringing all this drama and they're trying to work with one hand and listen to the problems with the other hand. They come home, this is that home of refuge where the husband is the Christ-like uh, redeemer for her soul in a small sense, a micro sense, if, we, if, 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 if I can use that term, where she knows there's not going to be any static. There's not going to be any smoke, as they say. There's not going to be any drama in the home. She can come home and know I can rest with him. 
Know that he's going to pray for me. He's going to lift me up before God. He's going to read the word. Even when I'm tired, I just want to close my eyes and I can ask him, can you just read the Bible for me? We're not to say, well, push on the button. You know it'll play it for you. You know you can listen to it on your iPhone. No, he's to say yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, no problem. No problem. I, I will read it for you because that's why I'm here. That's why God has brought me here to serve. He is not to be the stumbling block. He also uh, commands husbands to show honor to his wife as to the weaker vessel. Weaker meaning delicate. With his hands and his words, the husband should always treat his wife as a precious rose petal. Not as some weeds in the backyard to be trampled on or even neglected. She's to be preferred and appreciated. Husbands are to remember that marriage is the grace of life. In other words, it's the best gift that God has given to man on earth after salvation. Not individualistically or based on your experience, but universally, based on how God ordered it to be. If a husband fails to follow these commands, the scripture says that his prayers will be hindered. God is not going to heed the prayers, requests, or supplications of those who treat his daughters badly. Earthly fathers who have daughters can understand that. No guy who treats our daughters badly should expect anything from us. So it is with God. When you think of the responsibility given to husbands in leading their homes and leading their families, that is a big deal. How can a man intercede for his wife and children if his prayers are hindered due to his bad behavior towards his wife? The Apostle Paul shows us husbands in more detail how to love our wives as God intends us to in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 28. Um, let's look at that real quick. We'll probably end there because time is moving quickly. But I, I want you to think about that, husbands, right? The way you treat God's daughters matter. Before she is your wife, she belongs to God, right? First Peter 3, 7 gives us the instruction from a letter. And we look at letters to, 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 to learn how we should uh, operate. It gives us instructions, imperatives. The Old Testament or historical narratives, even the book of Acts, are therefore, you know, examples, but we have to be careful. We don't want to make those doctrine. But I will look at Malachi chapter 2, and then we'll go to Ephesians 5. You don't have to turn there. You can look at it later. But in Malachi, in Malachi the book, as a matter of fact, you have an issue with the priest and the people. In the first two chapters, God deals with the priest because there was famine in the land at that time. There was famine. And God says, here's your problem. Here's what's happening. Here's a part, a major part of what's happening. In chapter one, he says, when you bring me an offering, you are bringing me your spotted and speckled and injured animals. He says, you wouldn't even do that for your governors. And then he gets into chapter two and he says, well, here's another reason I'm not hearing you. Here's another reason there's famine. You want rain. I'm not opening up the, the windows of heaven until you repent, but here's the second thing you do is how you treat your wives. 
You're giving them a certificate of divorce for every little thing, but haven't I made the two one? And why one? Because I desire godly seed. God is looking at the character of the priest, and the whole nation is suffering. God looks at the character of the husband, and many times that household can suffer because of the, the, the prayers of the husband are bouncing off of the ceiling. And only because of God's incredible mercy will he allow that family to continue. But you know in your heart that something is wrong within these walls. And God says, I need you to repent, husbands. I need you to turn. I have given you this position in your house, and it carries a lot of weight. It carries a lot of weight. The weight... We can see that in Ephesians chapter 5. I hope that you are there now. I'll begin verse 25 to 28. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Here he tells the husbands the level of intensity they should have when it comes to loving their wives. How much should we love our wives, men? As much as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her. We love our wives to the level of giving up our preferences and conveniences, every day laying our lives down for her. Please don't think I have this down perfectly. Please don't think that, right? But my desire and my aim is to get better at it. And that should be our desire as husbands, to get better at it. Our goal, our aim is to please God by loving our wives as God says we should, the way God says we should. Then in verse 26, Paul tells why husbands need to share the word with his wife, just as Christ does with the church. When he says Christ cleanses her by the washing of water with the word to help wash the effects of the world, the flesh, and the devil from weighing heavy upon our wives, we ought to speak the word with our wives. We ought to read the word with our wives. We ought to meditate upon the words with our wives. We ought to memorize the word with our wives so that in the end, when she stands before God, she has grown in her sanctification, a.k.a. Christ-likeness. That's what Paul says Christ is doing with his bride, the church, in verses 26 to 28, I'll read it again, when he says Jesus cleanses her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Praise the Lord. The word of God is filled with instructions and examples for husbands and wives, wives to follow. But the question remains, 
How do we get there from here? How do we uh, make this happen? How do we accomplish this worthy task? Love. But I'm talking about love for God the Father and love for God the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit. As our love for God increases, our love for people increases. The two go hand in hand. If we love God, then we love those who are made in the image of God. So in marriage, the husband can't sacrificially love his wife if he is not sacrificially loving his God. And the wife, likewise, cannot sacrificially love her husband if she is not sacrificially loving her God. And no one can honestly say they're sacrificially loving God if they're not sacrificing their time communicating with God, speaking to him through prayer, and listening to him as he speaks through his word. That is what it is to have a relationship with God. Intentional prayer and digging into the text, asking what is God saying and why? What is my father relating when there are so many things he could have said in his word, but he chose this for his people? We may believe we don't have the time, but we'll make time for who and what we love. There's nothing more vital, nothing more vital to our walk with God than making time for him. Woodside and beyond, I pray we will make time, give the effort to communicate, have a relationship with the God of the universe. God should not take a backseat to those other things we deem so important in our lives. He deserves much more than that. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for teaching us through your word how to love one another. You taught us that love seeks to give, not take, to bless, not curse, to lift up, not tear down. When you gave your only son so people from every tongue, tribe, and nation would be saved, that was love. When you blessed all who would believe in your son with a home already prepared in the heavens, that was love. Even now, when the tragedies of life devastate us, your merciful hand lifts us up as opposed to tearing us down even more. That's love. Thank you, Father. We have truly seen that your steadfast love endures forever. May all those who have entered into a covenant of marriage show the same type of love that's strong enough to endure forever. Amen.